Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you come to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth or the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, de devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city with all its, and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It will be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please pray with me. Father, uh, we turn to you right now um, asking simply that you would uh, help us to hear you. Um, we know that whatever you speak to us, whether it be easy to hear or hard to hear, you speak to us in love for our good that we might have life. And so we ask um, that you would do that good now, that you would help me to speak in a way that's faithful, that you would help us to hear whatever you want us to hear, um, that, that we would be made more and more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I think there's, there's some aspects to this passage that are fairly challenging. And so I thought kind of to begin, as you know, we're kind of continuing through this middle section of Deuteronomy, but to begin to orient us, I want to start with a couple of different images that Jesus uses uh, when he is preaching. Um, both of them are fairly familiar. The first we probably are, are familiar with, Jesus speaks about two different pathways. He says that there is a narrow and difficult way, or at least that's how it appears when, when we're, we're facing it. Uh, it. It looks cramped as we're seeing that path. It looks steep. It looks hard. And Jesus says, for that reason, many people don't choose it. But that way, Jesus says, paradoxically, as those who walk along and discover it is the way of freedom, of joy, of life, it is the way of worshiping God. He says, that's the narrow pathway, but there's another pathway. There is, it's a broad pathway, plenty of space. It seems even and, and flat. Jesus says, that's the way of idolatry, and though it looks easy and many go on it, it is the way of death. And in some ways, we could say that what we're seeing with Deuteronomy and even specifically with Israel's experience is an illustration of that. When, when Moses, on behalf of God, comes to the people of Israel in Egypt and says, we're going to kind of, God is going to take you out of this. This was a scary thing to Israel. They, they had to endure these, watching these ten plagues and, and Pharaoh pressing down hard upon them. And then even when they went to the wilderness, walking through the wilderness was a terrifying thing. It looked hard and it looked narrow, but we see in Deuteronomy the destination they are going to experience rest. In just the previous chapter, we saw God saying, when you come in, I want you to take 10% of what you have and come in my presence and have a feast and rejoice. It is this picture of life. This is the way of life. But we also see, and this is spoken of in chapter 12, this, this other way spoken of, the, the way of idolatry. And as Nick pointed out last week, it's a way that has its appeal idolatry doesn't just happen for no reason. There are things that idolatry promises, a sense of control, a sense of power, a sense of getting what you want that, that happens early on along the way. But I don't know if you were listening last week, but the, the last few verses are, are somewhat terrifying, where, where God says uh, through Moses, you must not worship me in the way that idols are worshipped, like those people who offer their children as sacrifices to their gods. And I dare say when people first kind of embark on this road of idolatry, that is not the, the pitch that gets them. Join me and you can sacrifice your kids. It's not like that. It's, it's this idea of if you, if you come, you will get these things. And over time, as they are following along these false gods, they find themselves getting less and less and being asked more and more until they get very little and in order to placate their gods, they have to even give their own children to do so. And, and I would suggest that that is the way that idolatry works. Even, even today, we don't obviously have Baal, but if you think about the things that are held out before us and, and, and look appealing, even something as simple as a phone. Like a phone, you know, especially when the iPhone first came out, it, it, it promises like entertainment. It promises ease, efficiency, security. Technology can solve all your problems. And at first, it kind of does, but how many people love their phones these days? It feels like more and more we give and we receive less and less until the question is, do we have the phone or does the phone have us? That's how idolatry works, where you give more and more and you receive less and less out of it. And Jesus says, that's the way of death. It looks broad, it looks easy, but it's not taking you where you want to go. So there are these two pathways. This is the, the central decision of life, the two pathways to walk along. 
So then I want to get to the second illustration that Jesus uses that is probably a more enigmatic one, but also equally famous, where at one point Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now, I, I want us to notice from that that Jesus is talking about very similar things. It's, it's, again, he's talking about a choice between life, the way of life, entering into life, and death. But he's using a very violent image here, isn't he? And throughout the ages, there's evidence that at least sometimes some Christians have taken this literally and, and have actually harmed themselves. But, but I think it's fairly clear that's not what Jesus has in mind. There is never a time where it's actually my hand's fault that I've sinned, or my foot's fault, or my eye's fault. That's not his point. What he is saying, though, is that the stakes are enormously high. And, and here, here's the problem. Once, once we get past the, oh, we're not supposed to take this literally, phew, then we kind of can move to the, oh, so I won't pay attention to what Jesus is saying at all. But Jesus is saying something important here. He's wanting to shock us and saying, it is so important, it is so important to choose the way of life that if it made a difference, it would be worth it to cut off a limb. It would be worth it to pluck out an eye because it's about everything. There are some things, and this is the one, that is so valuable that it's worth doing whatever you need to protect it. And there are some dangers so grave, and idolatry and death is that, that is worth doing whatever you need to do to protect against it. And that, I suggest, is what we also see to be at the heart of this morning's passage. That as we are in Deuteronomy being told of these two ways, the way of life, of loving God, of worshiping Him, knowing Him, the way of wisdom and the way of idolatry, of apparent control but ultimately death, what we are seeing here is this is not something to be trifled with. This is something that is so significant, so important, that it is worth doing whatever we need to, to protect it. And, and, and the alternative is so dangerous that we must do whatever we can to protect against it. So that's what Moses is, is bringing to Israel's attention. And there are kind of three scenarios. The structure of our passage is actually fairly clear. If you have it open, and if not, I invite you to, you'll notice there are three paragraphs. And, and those paragraphs, each of them, are laying out a specific scenario that Moses is anticipating, which in verse 3 he speaks of explicitly as tests. Moments where, you are being, where a test is being put to you where you have the choice between following along the pathway of life or being invited instead to turn towards the pathway of death. And each of these three, he gives the same direction. He says, when this happens, if, if, if something like this happens and you're faced with this, you must do two things. You must first refuse. Refuse. When people are inviting you down the wrong way, you must refuse that. Do not listen to it. But he doesn't just say that. That's the one we'd expect. He doesn't just say you must refuse. He also goes on to say you must remove. 
You have to remove this voice. You have to completely shut it down. You must not leave the door open at all, but deal decisively with it because the stakes are that high. So the first scenario we see is in the first five verses, and it's the simplest of the three. Moses says to the people of Israel, so say a prophet comes. Maybe he's come from out of town, or maybe he's come from within your town. And, and here's what he says. He says, let us go after other gods which you have not known. Which, like, why are you going to listen to some random guy about that? But notice the reason that comes right before. It says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So, in other words, he is doing something. Maybe he, he pronounces a curse upon someone and that person dies. Or, or maybe he, he predicts a flood that will take place and the flood happens. Or maybe he even does something like he calls down fire upon a forest and the fire happens. This is real things that are happening. This is power. Again, I think we alluded to this last week. It's not that idolatry has no power. There are spiritual powers in this world, and they do promise something. I mean, the promise essentially is of power. I will give you what you want as long as you give me yourself. That is always the deal of idolatry. It's the, if you think about it, the deal that Satan tried to make with Jesus. All of this is mine. I'll give it to you if you just worship me. It is the decision that is poised to us when we feel ambition to succeed or when we pursue financial security. It will give us what we want to a point if we just give ourselves to it. But of course, the implication is when you say, turn towards these other gods, well, as it says, it is by doing so, he will bring you, verse 5, he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. To turn to these false gods means to turn away from the God who has loved you, the God who has freed you, the God in whom you have life. So the false prophet is, is saying, choose here, come with me to the way that we say is death and deeply dangerous and turn away from the way that we know is life and worth protecting above all things. It is obviously a really bad idea. And so Moses says, so if that happens, if someone is promising you power in exchange for idolatry, here's what you need to do. First, you need to refuse. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet that dreamer of dreams. That's what we'd expect. Don't, don't listen, don't pay attention, but, but notice how it goes on. It's not just refuse. You need to remove. Verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Which sounds kind of intense, Right? I wonder if, if we think about this, okay, someone who's preaching a false gospel, they're, they're to be executed? Now, just to be clear, we are not in that age anymore. This is, you know, in, in the time where we're no longer in a theocracy that is of this earth, but we belong to a kingdom that belongs to heaven in Jesus, and, and where we're told our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers. That is no longer what we are called to, but I, I want to just pause for a moment and ask, why is it that we react so, at least sometimes, some of us, so negatively to the idea 
of, of this prophet being put to death. Let me ask, what would be the appropriate penalty? Does this feel like an overreaction? Or is it actually that we underestimate just how severe this actually is? This is a person who is leading other people to their eternal destruction. This is a person who in a, a community that has made a covenant with God who is bringing about treason. And, and we're told also that there is this great danger, verse 5, when it says, you shall purge the evil from your midst. It is, it is like a disease, it is like a cancer that if it is not dealt with, it will spread. What would be the appropriate punishment for something so grave? Is it possible that we have trivialized, that we've underestimated just how significant this thing is. Moses says this is, to, the, to know God, to love Him, is something so supremely valuable. And to open the door to idolatry is so dangerous. We must do what we can. We must be decisive, whatever the cost. And whatever the cost really gets put to test in the second and probably to us the most disturbing of the three. Because now it's not just some person, some anonymous person. Look at verse 6 in this next scenario. If your brother, someone you've known all your life, or your son or your daughter, someone that you love beyond ability to express, or the wife that you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods. Moses says, I want you to imagine this scenario, someone that you love intimately, after dinner, after other people have left, quietly says, I want to talk to you because I think we're not doing it right. I think there's another way. Moses says, when that happens, you are being faced with a choice. You're being faced with a choice where you are having to determine what you value most. And here's what he says to do. He says, again, the same idea is first there needs to be a refusal. Verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Again, that makes sense, to, to refuse to be led by this falsehood. But see where it goes on. Nor shall your eye pity him. In other words, you shall not hide him from justice, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. I mean, this is honestly almost unimaginable, isn't it? It would be excruciating. I mean, it's, I think it's hard enough when someone close to us is, is seeking to influence us. I can think of a number of families I've known who I think have kind of been moved away from faithfulness because of some family member that they were influenced by. That's hard. It would be just way, way, way harder to not hide your child from the death penalty, but allow justice to be done, or to, to not hide a close friend, but 
but it goes further than that. It's saying not just that you shouldn't hide this person, but that when it's time to do the stoning, you are the one to pick up the first stone and throw it. I am incredibly grateful that we are not living in that time, that we are living in a day where our kingdom is not of this world, where our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers. But but again, we need to recognize that even though that is not the instruction that we're given today, we, we should ask, why? Why is it that God would have such an extraordinary instruction to be given here? Why would God call on the family member to be the one who throws the first stone? And I think the answer is because God is aware of just how dangerous this temptation is, that even That if somehow this person was not involved in the final death penalty, if they removed, there could be resentment. There could be this lingering window being open where what that person said before they died could continue to have an influence on them. And this is so important and so significant that they themselves need to be clear in their own minds and their own hearts that they too condemn this and that this is not an acceptable thing. Because God knows that this most precious of gifts, earthly gifts that He's given us, the human relationships, which are gifts from God, can even themselves be used as a wedge by Satan to remove us, to turn us away from the one who matters most. This is not the only place that we see this coming up in Scripture. You might remember a similar test. Remember with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, the gift that God gave, the, thing that, the person that he promised to Abraham, he tells Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac. And we're told that this was a test to help Abraham to recognize that God himself was more precious even than Isaac. It's not just in the Old Testament. What does Jesus say? I tell you the truth that anyone who comes after me must hate his father, his mother, his wife, his brother, even his own self. And the point is not to hate them literally. God clearly tells us that we're supposed to love family members. But the point is that in comparison, our God must come first above all. And Moses is saying here, this is something so extraordinarily important that we must be decisive whatever the cost. The third scenario um, is it gets even bigger in some ways. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, and that word your, I think, is important. It's part of your tribe, part of your team. This city would be something that you would live nearby where you would do commerce with. It would be, importantly, when you would go off to battle, those who would battle alongside of you. This, this city would be part of your economic engine. This city would be part of what makes you great and powerful. To somehow deal negatively with them would be, well, it would be kind of like chopping off your own foot. And of course, that is exactly what's being described here. He says, if, if the city, if you find out that some certain worthless individuals have been preaching this false way of idolatry to the city, and they have turned away from me, then you need to first investigate. There's never a call, when there's a call to be decisive, it's not a call to be hasty. There's a call to be careful, to make sure there's an understanding of what's going on, but if it is clear that they have done what it seems like they have done, 
then you no longer treat them like brothers. If you remember earlier on Deuteronomy, the way that the Canaanite cities were to be treated who are idolatrous, that is how you are to treat this city. It is to be utterly destroyed, which would have been unthinkable. Now, we don't have time to kind of go here for too long, but I do think that there's something here where, where God is, is calling His people to recognize that tribal loyalties, as strong as they might be, can never be the ultimate. It's worth even asking, are there times where people who are part of our group, our team, whether we're talking about political party, whether we're talking about church denomination, whatever it is, where we're willing to shut an eye on the negative things they do because we don't want to kind of harm our group, the good guys. I mean, this passage is speaking very carefully against that. But what I want us to notice kind of at a larger scale as we're looking at the passage overall is how, how there is this, this process of infection when things are not being dealt with. So it begins with the false prophet, and, and if the false prophet is dealt with, then you will purge the evil from your midst, and the problem is done. But if the prophet is not dealt with, but maybe he keeps speaking and leads some of your family members to turn away as well, then we know what the response is supposed to be. And verse 11 says, if you do that, all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you, and it will be dealt with. But if you don't do that, and then they begin to spread, then you'll have an entire city that will be compromised, and then they will have to be dealt with. And of course, the implication is, and if that is not dealt with, what happens when the whole nation turns away? It's a cancer. And we know, we know how cancer must be treated. Sometimes cancer can, because it's so dangerous, it can involve harming ourselves in the short term to be able to save ourselves in the long term. And Moses is saying, that is what you need to see. That's how dangerous this idolatry is. That's how precious life is. And so the question that we are posed with is, is what do we do about this? We've already talked about how we are not in the age where the death penalty in this fashion is what we're supposed to be using, thank God. But we are still, I think, meant to understand that there is the same urgency, the same significance to these two pathways that we see before us. It's in the New Testament that Jesus speaks in terms of being willing to cut off limbs for the sake of doing what is right. You know, I, uh, from what I understand, um, when someone is maybe coming to a counselor's office because they're wanting to end an addiction, maybe they're wanting to quit smoking or something like that, Sometimes what the counselor will ask the person who is seeking this is, now, do you want to quit, or have you decided to quit? Because there's a pretty big difference between the two. Wanting to quit, I mean, we have all sorts of wants. We want to be fit. We want to run a marathon. We want all of these things, and we might kind of go after them at some times. If someone wants to quit cigarettes, maybe for a half day they'll try to stop smoking, but they'll leave some cigarettes somewhere just in case they change their mind. Want is 
Well, not sufficient. Deciding, deciding is a different thing. Deciding means that you're willing to do things that are costly, that you are willing to do things that are painful because it is important to you. And I would suggest that when we think of our own lives, when we think of, of some of the sinful temptations, temptations that, that drawn to their conclusion are inviting us to turn away from God, sometimes it's just a matter of us wanting to not do that. Wanting in such a way that we still will leave the door open. It can be small, it can be significant things. Small, like maybe, maybe we've come to realize that, that endlessly scrolling on Instagram does not produce in us the kind of person we want to be. That we, we do not find the fruit of this endless scroll to be loving God more and loving others more. But yet, we say, okay, I'm going to try to, to do that less, but we leave the app on the phone, we're leaving the door open. Or, or maybe we are beginning to recognize that our, um, our relationship with our money is, is somewhat unhealthy, that there are ways that we are, when we're feeling down, we purchase to make ourselves feel better. When we are looking for something to look forward to, it's something that we're planning on buying. And, and maybe there's even this moment where we realize that we're making a purchase and it's really not being done in a healthy way. This is something that's not reflecting the way we want to be. And yet, we rationalize and we figure out why we think we should do it so we can feel better about it and we just leave the door open. Or maybe speaking kind of in a more extreme situation, maybe there is someone that we find ourselves unhealthily attracted to. I mean, we love our spouse, but that's there. And we just convince ourselves we're not going to let it go anywhere, and yet we find ourselves scheduling things where we're seeing that person more and more and more. We're leaving the door open. And I think the question that this passage is posing to each of us do we want to love God with all our being, experience life in Him? Do we want to avoid idolatry? Or have we decided? Decided that this is the way that we will pursue. Decided that that danger is so great that we want to avoid it. If that is our decision, what do we do? Do we just then, kind of in this ball of passion, choose to get rid of anything that might possibly tempt us and go away from it all? That is certainly what some Christians have done. If you look at the, the desert fathers, that seems to be something that they've done. Let's just leave everything. But I would suggest that oftentimes an all-or-nothing response is not sustainable, and it doesn't actually produce the life of love for God and others that He is calling us to. So what do we do as we feel the gravity of this, as we're told not to trivialize that this is significant? How, how do we respond? I've been saying throughout that, that this relationship with God is so valuable, it must be protected, whatever the cost. And this danger is so grave, it must be fought against, whatever the cost. And I want to then give the second piece of that statement, and that is that God recognizes that you and I don't have it in us to do that. We know that because Deuteronomy itself, when it comes to the end, says you are going to fail. 
But even as we are in some ways incapable of valuing our relationship with God, incapable of letting go of the sin that has so grasped us, God values what we don't. And He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. I mean, we're told Jesus, when He comes into this world, He is the one who walks the narrow way of devotion and love for God, even as he is being tempted by Satan. Just, I will give you everything he refuses, even unto death. And as he rises again, he says, now I am the way. I am the way to the Father. Come through me. And what I think that means is as we are understanding that there's these pathways, this choice, it is not a matter of us trying to figure things out, but actually a matter of us learning to listen. It's not a matter of us just kind of on our willpower going alone, but instead learning to be led. I think the key to understanding what our response is to be here is to hear the words that Jesus spoke just a short while before he went to his death. Where he said, I, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, what does a good shepherd do except to lead his sheep into the way of life? And what is Jesus promising but exactly that? He says, my sheep, I will take care of. My sheep, I will protect. Whatever the temptation, I will not let them be snatched from my hand. My sheep, I will lead until we are brought face to face with God himself. If this morning, as we hear this passage, or maybe God has been working in different ways throughout the last weeks, and you feel keenly, or maybe in kind of like this dull sense that your life is not going in the right direction. It could be in a very big sense where you have, you, you realize, hey, I have, I have just not, I, I am turned away from God. I have been failing to be the person I'm wanting to be or that God wants me to be. Or maybe it's in a very specific sense where you realize that there is something about your life that is out of accord with your relationship with God. Whatever it is, I would suggest that here is where the answer is found. First, to, to recognize the significance of it, not just to trivialize it and treat it as something small, but second, rather than just trying to deal with it ourselves, to come to our good shepherd and to ask, to ask, Lord Jesus, would you please lead me? Would you please deal with this? Would you please allow me to be in your flock? And would you please protect me and lead me home? Jesus says, whoever calls to me, I will not cast out any of them. And as we pray, as we call out to Jesus, as we acknowledge our need, I invite you also then to have a posture of listening. My sheep, he says, hear my voice and wait and see how your Lord, your shepherd, leads you.